Do you know anyone who likes Hawaiian pizza? You know, the one with ham and pineapple on it. Well, maybe you like pineapple on pizza yourself. Until I started this podcast series, I really had no idea quite how much some people have very strong views about whether it's acceptable to put a fruit on a pizza. In fact, many of us have very strong views about many things, including ones that on the face of it don't really matter that much. Why is that? Is it part of what makes us human? Or should we care less about what other people believe and how they behave? I'm Paul Dolan. I'm a professor of behavioural science at the London School of Economics. And this is the That Rabbit Podcast. I've spent years researching human behaviour and happiness. And I'm well aware of the comfort that can be found in conforming to core beliefs and from dismissing anyone who dares to disagree with them. But now I'm interested in whether our polarised culture might be making us unhappy. Today, I want to look at why we take sides on so many issues, from food to football clubs, from pizza to politics. And can we find a way through it all? I'm going to be talking to two people who've had a lot of research and practice into helping people see things from the other side. One is Nick Chater. He's a professor of behavioural science at Warwick Business School and the inspiration for this podcast. He's working with the government on climate change, another polarising subject. The other is Lord Gus O'Donnell, who was Cabinet Secretary under Labour and Conservative Prime Ministers, and he played a key role in smoothing the way for the coalition government in 2010. Actually, I think he also suggested that I do a podcast. I guess they're both responsible for this in their own way. But before speaking to them, I want to say hi to my regular guest, Dr Kate Laffin. Hello, Kate. How are you doing? Doing great, Paul. Thanks. Looking forward to today's episode. Uh, good, great. Have you been up to anything exciting? No, head in the books at the moment. Studying, researching. <laughs> researching, busy researching. Working hard as you always do. Yeah, on occasion. <laughs> so we're going to talk about general issues of polarisation today, Kate, from pineapple on pizza to Brexit, COVID, climate change, the whole lot. Any initial thoughts or comments on the polarisation problem? Yeah, I think it's a really thorny one. And in particular, one thing that scares the bejesus out of me, if I can put it that way, is not just <laughs> polarisation. <laughs> you can but... put it like that. That's a very <laughs> colloquial way of putting it, I think. <laughs> it's a technical term, Paul. <laughs> you wouldn't know. <laughs> um, no, is effective polarisation. So that's not just that we stand very divided on certain issues, but the idea that we really start to distrust and dislike people who don't agree with us on particular issues that we have strong takes on that scares me a lot because it means that people tend to opt into socializing with people that agree with them tend to want to work with people that agree with them even when we use things like implicit association tests that get at our automatic reactions we tend to have negative reactions to people that disagree with us on issues that paints a pretty scary picture for me for how we're going to come together on topics but also just get along in society what's really even more scary about that i suppose is that once we identify someone as being from a particular tribe about one issue, then we'll often close off our minds to listening to them when they're talking about something completely different. So it's literally we split people into good and bad people as if they're always good or bad. And we always have to either agree with them or disagree with them about everything. So we reach the point where I don't listen to what's being said until I hear who's saying it. And then I then I only agree or disagree with it based on who's saying it, not on what they're saying. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. And it's something that you've you've highlighted in relation to COVID. And there's actually some empirical evidence to back that up. So um, some researchers in the US had existing data on whether people were really hostile towards other party members, so either Republicans or Democrats. And they found that depending on what your attitude was before COVID, that really to that to that other party, that really shaped how you responded to the other party's responses to COVID. So even before you know what they're going to stand, how they're going to think about COVID, you care about who's saying it. Good. Well, listen, I, you, you've been talking a lot about the polarisation in North America, but I, I'd like to think that we're not quite as polarised here in the UK. But let's hear what, what members of the public think about some of the subjects that get them really cross. Pineapple? On a pizza? No, it's wrong, wrong, wrong. Now, every time my girlfriend orders, like, pineapple on a pizza, I have to pretend I'm not with her. And come on, let's face it, you've got to warm to someone who orders straight off the bat a calzone or a quattro stagioni. Whenever I open Instagram or like some sort of social media app where I see one of my friends or just someone that like I know or follow has posted some sort of horrible graphic animal slaughtering pig farm and guts and all of this, like I find it annoying. It doesn't put me off. It actually just makes me really dislike you as a person. So I'm going to I'm going to like meat. That's not going to put me off. I have supported Manchester City all my life. And I think I can safely say that I actually don't like anyone who supports United. I know it's hard to believe, but you can't have a straight conversation with them. They're always United this, United that. Oh, you've got no history, blah, blah, blah. It's just boring. You can't have a proper conversation about football uh, or indeed anything really with United fans. So I'm a lifelong Chelsea fan, as is my daughter. But my husband is a massive Arsenal fan, as are my two sons. So when our two teams meet, it can cause real tension among us. <laughs> so there's certainly uh, quite a lot of people out there, Kate, who seem to take sides about many things. What do you make of all that? Yeah, it's a lovely array of examples there about the kinds of things that people have very strong opinions about. Some of which you'd argue maybe don't matter all that much. But I think what it does hit home for me is just how quickly and how intensely people take sides and create these in-groups and out-groups about things that oftentimes don't matter a whole lot. So the pineapple on pizza, it's not just that it's gross to have pineapple on pizza, but the guy can't be seen with his girlfriend if she has it. She's all othered because of that pineapple preference. And it reminds me of really early work in social psychology where they made groups out of arbitrary things like how many dots people saw on a screen, whether they overestimated it or underestimated it, created those groups and then saw how people used to look at and treat people either within their groups or out with their groups. And they saw that people punished uh, the people who were put in the other group almost randomly. Um, so for me, those those examples are just, just really comical examples. But the football one is particularly interesting because it shows that when people really care about a certain characteristic, so that team support really matters to their identity, they can kind of double down even. The guy doesn't not like Manchester United fans talking about football, but not about anything. He doesn't trust them about absolutely anything. Yeah, well, that speaks. So that speaks to my earlier point about once you identify someone as being in the in or out group, um, or as being like or unlike you on one attribute, you assume them to be like you or unlike you, or many many others that may have nothing to do with that initial dimension. Um, but I do the thing that I want to remind everybody of 
all of us and uh, is that there's a lot of similarities between us as well as differences. So whether you support Man United or Man City, you're still a football fan. And I think sometimes we can lose sight of that. And actually now watching, um, as, as I'm speaking, England are doing very well in the Euros. So we come together as Man United fans, Man City fans, West Ham fans as I am to support England. So there is opportunity for us to recast identities and to be part of a bigger group when the context fits. So anyway, listen, that's all been very interesting. But one of the people that I wanted to talk to on this podcast is someone who knows a lot about polarisation. Professor Nick Chater at the University of Warwick is a professor of behavioural science. And I'm especially interested in talking to Nick because he's basically responsible for the title of this podcast series. So although the duck rabbit illusion has been around for a very long time, my attention was most recently drawn to it by Nick when we did a panel discussion about a year ago around COVID. And he used it as a really nice metaphor for how people have come to see the virus. And it really was the the main motivation, for, really, I think, in many ways, for me doing the podcast in this way. He's also a member of the UK Climate Change Committee, which advises the government. It's clearly a subject that's polarised people around the world. I think that's true in lots of countries, yes. So I think in UK politics, it seems remarkably unpolarised, actually. So most and all the main political parties seem to be relatively aligned. And there are obviously differences of sort of degree about how quickly people are willing to go and the exact trade-offs and so on. But it doesn't seem to be an issue about the um, the, the basic acceptance of anthropogenic um, warming. Um, so the fact that you know, human carbon emissions are causing climate to, to, to heat up and that some action has to be taken. That, that seems relatively stable now. Now, of course, in, in the US, that's not the case. But I think the US really is an outlier here. Um, and, that, and, and I think the debate's changed quite a lot in the, in, in the UK and other parts of Europe in the last decade or so. Um, so I think that's an interesting case where polarisation seems to have, yeah, seems to, seems to have gradually dissipated, thankfully. So why do you think that is? Because I, I asked that because one of the one of the things that we would both agree on, I think, is that evidence doesn't really change people's minds. But but this feels like an example where, where it has. Yeah, and it is a very interesting question. It's somehow, and I think where these things maintain themselves there's, some, there's usually some other force at work. Um, as you say, evidence is, is probably you know, le- the least of it. And some, so, so the force might be, for example, having a strong sense of identification of a particular scientific opinion with a strong, with, with, with some other uh, sort of political or opinion or sense of identity. Um, so that might be, I mean, that might be true. Again, thinking about the US example, that might be true with creationism versus Darwinism, which is another polarization we don't really have in Europe. Um, but, but but it's just not the case that being a creationist in most European countries is particularly associated with a you know, Christian faith. It's just a separate. It's just a separate issue. And um, once you start to think that adopting a particular perspective tells something deep about who you are and what your values are and so on, then I think these, it's very hard to get this dissipation of um, uh, to occur. But it's very interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a, it's an odd thing because, as you as you say, it can't it can't simply be a matter of the evidence just became overwhelming, mm. um, and of course the evidence is exactly the same all over the world. So it's not, you know, and, and in some places the polarization is still present. So you think a lot of that, how we take sides, whether we see the image as a duck or as a a rabbit, is an identity issue. Do you think? Well, I mean, I think yeah, I do. I do think that's right. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously lots of lots of things at play, but um, you think that'd be at the forefront. Yeah, I think that is right. And of course, it has a lot to that itself then affects who we trust and who we don't trust, doesn't it? So the 
the, one of the reasons that evidence is very difficult to bring to bear, apart from the fact that you know, with climate change, almost anything complicated, um, we don't really understand the details. You know, you know, we're not all climate scientists, so we clearly can't evaluate the, the details in any re- meaningful way ourselves. Um, but there's this crucial question about who you trust. And I suppose this identity question can give you a sense of, well, I trust people who are like me. And I don't trust these other people. In fact, they've got a hidden agenda and they're trying to fool us. Um, so I, so in fact, I just systematically doubt anything they say. So once you've got into that sort of mindset, I mean, Q- QAnon would be an extreme example in in US at the moment. You might think the evidential basis for QAnon is almost comically absent. I mean, it's just like there isn't any. They keeps making predictions. None of them ever happen. It's just you know, completely a faceability is, is, is very, very low. But that's not really the key thing. It's that inside that sort of set of uh, thoughts and the people connected with it. There's a sense of it. There's there's, there's us against these these people, these these, these people, these, the, the state or the the media and so on, who yeah. are trying to manipulate us and push us around. So we don't trust what they say and how much they say we're making wrong predictions or everything's nonsense. So then we, that just shows shows how right we are. So you can get sort of horribly trapped. Let's move from one seat to the next. So from climate change to COVID, do you think that the last year or so has been a sign of increased polarization i don't know i don't know what i think about that i mean certainly within individual countries um for good or ill there hasn't i mean science, so, so can yes, i just yeah. interrupt you there i think what, no you just said a really important point i don't know what i think about that and i think that's that's mm. actually one way i think that's a really important insight because i feel like that all the time about lots of things but then mm. you feel that sometimes we feel like we can't we can't say that because we're not smart enough or informed enough. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we're supposed to say to know, actually. Look, I don't really. I'm not actually sure. Um, yeah, it's almost taken yeah. as a sign of weakness that maybe that is yeah. one reason that drives these polarised issues. You have to be very clear about what you think. Yes, that, that's very interesting, isn't it? Yes, I mean, yes, the kind of thinking about ducks and rabbits. I mean, thinking it looks a bit like a duck, but on the other hand, <laughs> it's a bit rabbit-like. I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, that that is actually, obviously, in some in many ways, a, a rational response to an ambiguous situation, isn't it? That's why I've been so, I suppose, concerned about some of what's been at least said about our response to COVID is that people seem to be sure about knowing what to do. <laughs> and, mm. and I don't know anybody could have that degree of certainty because um, it was a very uncertain, you know, it is still a very uncertain mm. world. And I, I find, I'm, I'm, I feel a bit, I don't know, distrusting, mis, mis, is it word distrusting? Mistrusting of um, academics who are sure, especially academics mm. uh, who are sure. I get why yeah. advocacy groups would be, but isn't it mm. incumbent on academics to have a little degree of humility and uncertainty? Yeah, no, I, I do think that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, it's sort of going back to the ducks and rabbits. I mean, it's one of the things I think it's easy to do as an academic is to have a particular way of thinking about problems and to apply it to you know, whatever things in front of you. Um, and we all have you know, sets of frames to look, apply to the world. And I suppose a very dangerous thing is to be tricked into thinking, um, I'm certain because what I'm certain about is that within my framework, this is how to do, deal with the problem. Whereas the thing you shouldn't be, should be uncertain about, which is thinking, if it's a duck, then this is what we should do. Because uh, yeah. I've got tools to think about ducks. But what if it isn't a duck? In which case, I'm just wasting my time. Um, and in, in sort of other areas of science, I think this is you know, probably also a big problem. But, but if you think about something like... Um, 
some some sort of basic physical thing like you know, projectiles um, you know, being fired and wondering where they're going to land. Um, and if you don't if you don't have a theory which has friction in it, that will be great for lots of things. But it's obviously sometimes if you're thinking I'm going to project feathers, say it's going to be completely useless. And you know, in some sense, it's sort of obviously the case that the theory isn't going to work always. So sometimes there are other factors which you just haven't got in your theory, and they really you know, completely change everything. And I think in in social science, we we sort of know that's true, but still. Possibly, sometimes our policy prognostications are not really don't really fully take that into account. Let's talk more generally about mm. taking sides and move away from some of these uh, obviously very important policy challenges like climate change and COVID, and talk about something like uh, w- what people think about pineapple on pizza, which is mm. an issue that people really do take sides about. Why do people care so much about seemingly trivial issues? One of the things that is very important in terms of sort of harmonious social relations is having a common understanding of both the rules of essentially the rules of engagement um, and also of course there's there are values too so you know what we're trying to achieve what's you know what's reasonable what's moral and so on and and if we if we don't have if we have, if we have differences over those things it's very hard for us to make any kind of so you basically had to get along because we as soon as we try and plan to do something or you know decide um, how we want to understand the world we're continually going to clash so thinking about so, so I'm very interested in the idea that a lot of social interactions are really about joint behavior so doing things together and if you're going to do things together in a team or an organization or a, um, any any group at all you've got to have some shared stuff but we've got to agree and if we don't agree then we're going to get you know we're going to fail as a team we're going to get on badly and I, I suppose that I mean, this obviously has something to do with identity issues as well, because if I'm going to be part of a team, I want to be part of a team that's going to work, which I'm going to work well with, and it's going to work well with me, and I'm going to get, not get ostracized and disliked by it. So it needs to have this, this there needs to be the sense that the rules that it's, and that it's living by are kind of ones that are natural for me. Um, and so I wonder if this leads to sort of weird overextensions, because obviously, Pineapple on pizza. I mean, that just yeah, that doesn't matter for anything, does it? So it comes back to identity. Then is it? It comes back to being able to readily and easily identify with people like you for reasons of efficiency, so that you can organise mm. teams and innovation and everything else better, and also so you can identify those who might be threats or enemies too. I suppose one factor is sort of harmonious understanding of what we're trying to achieve. And the other is sort of motivational that even if you do understand what we're trying to achieve, I want to make sure that you, you actually answer. Yeah. You're not actually secretly, you haven't got some secret agenda that you're trying to subvert the the activities of the team to, to, to forward. So, so I suppose I see the fundamental thing as the ability to jointly, I mean, basically, you could view as humans, as social animals, as fundamentally only being viable because they can exist in sort of coordinated teams with other humans. And if, they, if they're left on their own, they've had it. So it's critical for us to work out you know, how, how to gel with other people as much as possible. But then this raises the question of, yeah, which people? And is, is this my team? Is this, yeah, is this some other team? Am I going to be rejected by this team at any moment? Um, all these kinds of questions. So these questions of identity. And of course, yeah, I mean, exactly as you say, the, the question of, yeah, um, who are my friends and who are my enemies? Um, so as soon as, yeah, so I mean, it's hard to imagine the pineapple of pizza really indicating, um, <laughs> indicating something terribly negative. Kate, what do you make of what Nick has to say? He's always a really interesting guy to listen to. 
Yeah, fantastic. There's there's loads to unpack in there. There's there's two big things that stand out for me. The first is your discussion of climate change. I myself work on um, issues in and around climate change. So I know a bit about the literature in that area. And a particularly interesting person on this is Dan Cahan. He works on cultural cognition. And he talks about how in the US as opposed to the UK, which you've correctly discussed the fact that it's much more polarised in the US than it ever has been in the UK. There's this issue of that issue having become polluted by social meaning. So if you say you believe in anthropogenic climate change in the US, that says a lot more about you than where you just stand on that issue. And there's been some nice research to say, you know, you, you're really well able to predict whether that person has a college education, what age they are, whether they vote Democrat or Republican, just based on that one thing about them. When I, um, in Happiness by Design, talk about attention being the glue that holds our life together, it explains what we do and how we feel. We, we attend to different identities throughout our, our lives and even in one day, right? I have an identity as an academic, as a father, as a West Ham fan, all of which can be activated by different contexts and environments. Isn't it just a bit simple to say identity defines the tribe that we belong to, given that, again, I'll say the two words again, context matters so much? I take your point that we have lots of different identities, but I think in the US, because of the two party system with the Democrats and the Republicans being so strongly embedded and, and they kind of being highly polarised in how they look at the world and, and view policy challenges, I think that that political identity is really salient for people when they're talking about things like climate change, even when you could argue that actually from both perspectives, taking action on climate change makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I mean, we obviously have a two party system here in the UK, but again, it's not it's not straightforward, right? Because you can have one set of views about economic issues on the one hand, another set of views about cultural issues on the other. Maybe neither party fully reflects your views on, on both of those issues at the same time. I just, I, I don't know. I, I think it just, it feels like there's a deeper explanation required than it's about identity. Is there not any cognitive... I mean, some social psychologists would argue that everything has <laughs> a social aspect to it, but... Is there not a cognitive component that might sit separately from the social one? Just simply how, you know, how we see the image. I mean, I, um, the way I see it as a duck and you see it differently as a rabbit, simply because we have different vision. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I, some, some work that I've seen on that topic on, you know, how people engage with issues cognitively actually suggests that one of the sources of polarisation is this thing called the, illusion of explanatory depth and that's actually there's that all of us on lots of issues even the ones that we feel very strongly with can overestimate how much we really know about them things like climate change things like policy response to covid are really complex issues and if you ask people what they know about them despite even if they have really strong takes on them if you chip away at that it's often very little yeah so i i, I think it's really interesting because that's quite a nice segue into something else that i just want to pick up on what Nick had said is that he didn't have a very strong view on whether he thought the last year had made made us more or less polarised. So I want to get your thoughts on that. But just generally on whether we feel like we have to have a strong view about everything. I, I feel like unless you, almost unless you don't, it's like, what, do you not know anything? Are you confused? Are you weak? Um, I just feel like we're kind of increasingly being pushed into taking sides on something and, and to actually be increasingly confident in something that we might not either have a view about or know very much about. I completely agree. And I think any amount of self-reflection would tell us all that we could learn more and could know more about the things that we hold strong opinions about. 
uh, one of the ways that has been suggested can help with that and help people to come to that recognition is to ask them not just why they believe what they believe, but actually ask them, you know, what is it you're trying to achieve and how will the policy that you support or the action that you favour lead to that? And when you dig that bit deeper and ask people for the mechanisms, it helps them to kind of get to the point where they realise, well, this is actually really complex. And so taking a very strong stance on something like this or an issue is maybe not the right way to go. Yeah. So what do you think about this last year? Do you think do you think that the pandemic has made us more or less polarised or had no effect at all? Or will it just be temporary? I'm not really sure if it's made us more polarised. It's certainly been this big disruption to our lives. And so the fact that people have strong reactions to the policies that have been put in place to address COVID makes sense. Um, in fact, you'd expect them to have even stronger reactions. I know I've heard you say that before, that actually a lot of people were very accepting of the limits on freedoms that, that came in under the COVID pandemic. Um, there has been maybe too little polarisation, <laughs> mm. you could argue, yeah. about that particular issue. It's one thing that's maybe worth thinking about is is whether polarisation on an issue in and of itself is a bad thing. Yeah. No, that's a really that's a really super observation, I, and and you're absolutely right. I have said that I've been very concerned in a world of uncertainty how certain some people seem to be about what our responses should be, and how there's been a considerable degree um, of groupthink. I think. I mean, I think that there's been a, a largely a consensus about how we ought to respond, and I and I and I question whether that's a tr either a true representation of what people really think or indeed whether that is an effective way to deal with a policy challenge so you're absolutely right there are conditions under which we've been talking about the polarization problem but but certainly one of the things i've tried to get across on this whole series is is actually that we want people to disagree we want disagree we want people to have different viewpoints a, a well-functioning society brings together in some way different points of view so we definitely should emphasize that um Reducing the polarization problem isn't always or even about reaching a consensus, but it's about being able to respect the fact that people might disagree with you. Anyway, listen, I want to I want to talk to someone who's uh, got lots of experience of getting people who who in fact do disagree with one another to come together. Lord Gus O'Donnell was cabinet secretary during the time of the coalition, and he says it's all about relationships. Nick Clegg and David Cameron got on well. Um, as a good uh, cabinet secretary, I devised all sorts of fancy procedures for dispute resolution, which were never used, right? And they were a complete waste of time. Um, I had fancy committees set up that met once or twice and then just didn't meet again because ultimately they had the ability to sit down together and say, look, um, you know, we can come to a, a compromise agreement on these things, on this, Absolutely not. I'm going to disagree with this and I'm going to disagree with it publicly. And we formulated this doctrine of the ability to publicly disagree because obviously the past doctrine was uh, <clears throat> cabinet responsibility, which was basically you'd have a discussion in cabinet, you make a decision and then everyone had to stick to it or resign. And within <clears throat> coalition, we had these things where, no, you know, we're going to come to a decision uh, but we're going to agree that actually uh, one of the parties will, uh, and obviously it was mostly the Lib Dems as the small party, would feel free to say, we disagree with this. Uh, and indeed, when it came to a big, big disagreement, it was like, 
well, you know, there was a deal on the voting system. You know, should we have first-past-the-post voting system? Mm. And the Lib Dems got the concession that there will be a referendum on that, which is the referendum I think that most people now forget about and um, don't even remember voting in. And the truth is the majority of them didn't, which is rather sad. Yeah. Uh, and so we still have the same voting system. It is sad. And the other thing that's sad in a way, whatever your political views, is that the Lib Dems got very heavily punished, didn't they, for the coalition, for for the kinds of compromises that we know are needed to get policy done better. Um, do you think that, I mean, have any sense of, of, because they're still being punished, I think, maybe even for it. I mean, people's memories are quite long. Do you think, do, do you think that that's now put people off finding mm. compromises, at least in public? You know, I was there for the formation of the coalition and, and the early years of it. And my success measure was to make sure that coalition government worked in the sense of they would stick together. You know, they agreed there would be a five year fixed term and they would compromise and, and come through. And it was a difficult period because they were trying to get a big deficit down. What, what in those days was regarded as a big deficit. Um, <laughs> it's kind of minor now. Um, and they were taking tough decisions. Uh, and these were unpopular decisions, and they were both doing them together in what I thought was a pretty responsible way. And I think that the Lib Dems did have a very strong influence on bringing the Conservative Party away from the, as it were, more extreme uh, policies, which which I I personally thought was was a, a good thing. But it certainly didn't help them, and the fact that they lost. Uh, the subsequent election, I think has meant that small parties now will be incredibly nervous about getting involved in any sort of coalition. So not only does it, it mean that they lost out for a while, but I think it's going to be really difficult uh, for them in future. This is not to say that they didn't know that that was the risk. Nick Clegg and I had a conversation very early on in which he said to me, so the history of small parties and coalitions, Gus? And I said, yeah, you get completely stuffed and um, it's not pleasant. And we both kind of knew that that was the most likely outcome. Uh, and still he went into it, which I think was testament to his view that the Lib Dems actually needed to understand what being in government was about. And given their position, it was really important that they did that. Coming to the present day, perhaps, we hear the term unprecedented times mentioned a lot, but we're unprecedented in the fact that the opposition have been so strongly supportive of the government measures in relation to restrictions and lockdowns. Do you think that's just unique to the pandemic or do you think that might reflect, I don't know, something more than that in any significant way? I'm not sure. I think it's one of those things where uh, politicians feel very cautious about uh, opposing a government that has all of the medical so-called experts at their beck and call. There's the language that's used around uh, lockdown decisions, which is very emotive. And I always find when, when any of these areas move into emotive language, then reason goes out the window somewhat. If we're thinking about moving forwards and, and ways in which we could take the emotion out, get the evidence in, whatever other changes we might want to see embedded in practice that would make politics and policy making better. Do you have a, a, list of, <laughs> a list of things we might do differently or better? 
Our system of auditing and accountability in this country rests around the National Audit Office, the Public Accounts Committee, and they're basically a hanging jury, right? All they do is look at things that have gone wrong and then try and drag people in front of them and say, you're to blame, you're to blame. Whereas I'd much rather we prevented big problems rather than trying to afterwards say, well, we got that wrong, didn't we? So some sort of ex-ante approach to uh, agreeing uh, big projects. You know, if, if we seriously looked at things like HS2 ex-ante, we would have said, really, you're going to deliver this for this amount of money? I'm not sure I'd buy that. Uh, why would I believe that? Similarly for, you know, a whole host of nuclear power plants, nuclear submarines. You know, the early costings have turned out to be wildly optimistic. And you can't have a proper debate when the costs are massively underrepresented. So, Gus, listen, thank you for your time. i just got one, one final question. It's quite a big one, really. Is um, there many ways in which you'd like to see politics change? I think that one of the problems, I would say, with, with our politics at the moment is, is the intergenerational stuff. And we have, you know, because of our, the way our democracy works, there are strong biases towards the old. The old are more numerous and they have a higher propensity to vote. And therefore, you know, an electoral system will, will basically favour them. And it's very hard for the young to, uh, and, and indeed, obviously, the unborn <laughs> and those under 18, you know, who don't get a vote, for all of those to have their, their voices heard. So I think there's a very strong inbuilt bias where we somehow need to think of ways to make our politics fit for future generations it's the last apartheid almost in our country i think almost the age thing um Mm. it's it's really quite profound i I think what what, what, one of the simple fixes would be to reform the house of lord and uh and and only allow people under 30 i'd i'd be um massively in favor of reforming the house of lords we're too big uh we're too old uh and we're too white and we're far too many hereditaries uh, for my liking. So, yeah, getting more young people in there. The House of Commons has nearly all the power at the moment. And the last thing they want is a House of Lords with more political legitimacy, because then it would want more power and it would take power away from the House of Commons. So, you know, we're stuck at the minute uh, and we're stuck in a very, very low level equilibrium and something needs to change. You are right, though, as we talk a lot about the gender diversity uh, in Parliament, um, sometimes race or two, but, but never age. I mean, we don't, I don't know how many MPs there are under 30, but there, but there aren't many. Not many, no. And um, the average age of uh, my manor, House of Lords, is, I think, <laughs> the wrong side of 70. Well, I was going to say, that's, why, that's, that's actually probably why you like being in the House of Lords is because you feel young still. I'm just a kid there, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the new boy on the block. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Gus says that defeating polarisation is all about personal relationships, in that case between Nick Clegg and David Cameron. Do you think he's right about that, Kate? Yeah, I think relationships are really important. Obviously, it's very hard to demonise somebody that you're having lunch with and that, you know, is is telling you not just about how they feel about climate change, for example, but also how their kids are doing at school or, you know, how they're getting on at home. I don't know. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, it's a good question. I do think, I mean, it's really, as you mentioned, with the affective 
states earlier, it, it's 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 almost impossible for us to separate out what we think of someone's views from what we think about them. <laughs> so once you've broken down the barriers to the relationship at a personal level, then you're almost necessarily to some degree breaking down the barriers that might exist in what they think. Um, and I, I, I do think, again, I've talked a lot throughout this series about the system one, system two distinction, the automatic brain and the reflective self is that sometimes we like, might like to think of ourselves as being able to keep those two things separate, how we feel about someone and how we feel about what they think. But I think that's really difficult. I, I, I'm, I'm actually not entirely convinced that we can ever do it fully. One of the challenges, uh, <laughs> bearing my soul on these uh, podcasts, is the conclusions. They're really, I, I find that they, they take a lot of time to say something that doesn't last very long because I'm trying to bring together different perspectives, different viewpoints, get the tone right in what, in what I think, let alone how I express it. And I'm going to have to do the same again with this one. And I, I wonder what, what suggestions and recommendations we might make or you might make about how we can reduce the polarization problems by designing environments in ways that make it easier for people to listen to one another, given our initial reaction to not like someone who says something that we disagree with. So I definitely agree that bringing people from diverse perspectives together is a good idea. Bringing them together and building relationships, allowing that to happen over a period of time rather than, you know, having people shout at each other across the aisles. Um, one of the things that happened in Ireland in, in the in the course of the Good Friday Agreement was that you saw people from both sides having to work together over a very long period of time, getting to know each other personally. And and that was um, that was credited for some of the success of that agreement is that there was that human side to things. So definitely people from different backgrounds of different opinions coming together, but sp spending time together too. Yeah. Is that a way? I mean, you know, Gus talks about making politics less adversarial. Um, would that, would even, do you, do you think even like maybe seating members of parliament in more of a semicircle yeah, would make a difference than having them sit, face one another? Randomly allocated, maybe. <laughs> or randomly allocated, sitting either side of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's something... It definitely can't be any worse than it currently is where they shout at each other. <laughs> no, it certainly can't be any worse. I, and chortle. No, I think that's right. And because that 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 we know that environments, literally physical environments, can shape our behaviour. So um, that might be one of the I know they're at the moment doing up parliament. Maybe they're probably a bit much to change the seating planning there, but um they could randomly allocate politicians either side of the aisle. That'd be such a fascinating thing to see. But I, we 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 shouldn't just be emphasizing politics. I think there's uh too much of a discussion of the polarization problem around political allegiances and issues that of a of a sort of big P kind, when actually we could all just be better off from just you know having a laugh with people that disagree with us sometimes. And I know, and maybe even in the corporate world too, right? You know, you have a more effective business if you if you pay attention, maybe more attention even to people who have a different perspective to you or to the people that you typically surround yourself with. Because I reckon um, we might learn more. You know, the sort of lessons in life that we really learn from are when we mess up, not when things go well, right? We don't actually really learn anything when things go well. We, we might learn lessons when things go badly. And maybe similarly, we might learn more about ourselves, about how to look at the world differently if we paid more attention to people that disagree with us rather than to those that agree.
and maybe with ways in which we could design environments to make that more likely. Listen, Kate, thank you so much again. My pleasure. I'm an academic whose research interests are shaped by my own personal experiences and puzzles. One of the main reasons I became an academic was to be able to discuss and debate important issues, robustly and respectfully. I was very proud when Alan Williams acknowledged me in his Fair Innings paper, published nearly 25 years ago, and which we discussed in the last episode, as helping to shape his views in my characteristically argumentative way. So I am concerned that we, academia and society in general, appears to be increasingly intolerant of those who disagree with us. The vitriol over Brexit is just one of many examples. And I have been deeply concerned about the groupthink that's taken place during COVID. Since day one, I've thought that lockdowns will cause more harm than good. Many academics disagree with me, and I respect that. But please respect the fact that I care just as much about human life as you do. Now, we've always wanted to surround ourselves with people like us and to take sides. And so polarisation is nothing new. I can remember things being pretty divisive in the 1980s. But perhaps social media has magnified our differences. And there is some evidence that younger people are more likely to stop talking to people who don't agree with them. Now, we can't know whether this is an age effect or a cohort effect. And so let's not get too carried away with the idea that things are worse now. In any case, the whole point of this podcast series has been to see if we can navigate our way through some tricky issues with a view to being more accepting of difference. Whilst experience and evidence can change our minds, I've changed my mind about male footballers wearing gloves, as you'll know from the gender episode, there will always be legitimate grounds to disagree. Modern society has evolved to where it is now because people differ in their beliefs and behaviour. We could all do with reminding ourselves of this. This does not mean that we can't have strong views about some issues. You will have heard in the last episode that I care deeply about the fair innings argument. That I have such strong views about that means that I'm very open to listening to different arguments. So a genuine willingness to listen to different perspectives when you're sure about something is a sign of strength and not of weakness. In this episode, Nick, Gus and Kate have each provided some great tips for breaking down polarisation. We all agree that we need greater diversity in decision making, and I reckon we would all benefit from greater diversity in our personal lives and discussions too. It might scare us, but we might actually quite like it. In a study where people were asked to talk to strangers, they hated the idea, but they enjoyed the experience. I definitely think that we have much more to learn from those that have a different perspective to us than from those who see the world similarly. On the subject of similarity, whether we see an issue as a duck or as a rabbit, we all see an animal in the image. We must definitely remind ourselves that there is often much more that we have in common than what makes us different, and that these similarities and the differences change over time, and yes, according to context. I'm recording this on the afternoon before England played Denmark in the semi-finals of the Euros. For one glorious evening, I'll be on the same side as Chelsea and Millwall fans. But tomorrow, like any good old Ammer, I'll be back to hating them again. Respectfully, of course. I really hope that you've enjoyed these three episodes in Season 2, as well as the five in Season 1. Please do let us know if you have, not least because LSE might give me some more money to make some more. Thanks so much for listening, and do keep arguing. I'm Professor Paul Dolan, and that was the Duck Rabbit Podcast. It's a Mother Come Quickly production. Next time, a special live edition of the Duck Rabbit Podcast, where with selected guests, I look at what drives our polarised culture. 
This podcast forms part of the Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Thank you.